Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would be with us right now, Lord, that you would uh, just enliven each of us to your spirit and how we might receive your word today, how we might grow and develop as a church that brings honor and glory to you. We ask for your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I imagine that uh, some of you are wondering, especially the moms, uh, what is this guy up to now? You're going to have to wait a little while before you find out how that little teaser relates to the message. Every once in a while, it's a good thing to take a step back and evaluate where we are, where we think we should be, and how we ought to get there. In that process, we should always start with our mission. And in Lion and Lamb, that is that we wish to be a fellowship of worshiping believers committed to authentically pursuing a vital relationship with Jesus Christ and obeying all of his commandments. Well, what does that look like? How does that affect our functioning as a body, and how does that translate in terms of changed lives in the real world? And our hope today is that we can start or continue to have an honest conversation on this subject as we seek God's plan and purpose for Lion and Lamb Church, our households, and our individual lives. So today we're going to start a series called Body and Life Integrity, and over the next several months, we want to talk about that. If you're new or visiting, I only can handle teaching about once a month, mercifully for you, therefore it's going to take me a while to cover this subject. Um, Our introduction today, we want to address our concept of the church. And for those of you, few of you who are around, I'm largely going to be repeating the very first message that I gave at Lion Lamb about five years ago with a few changes that I've derived from watching our body grow. Let's start with some questions. Has anyone ever asked you, where is Lion and Lamb Church? Well, let me ask you a question. Where will Lion and Lamb Church be in about three or four hours when the parking lot is empty? Well, just what is the church anyway? I first want to say that while there are some liabilities, there's really nothing at all wrong with a church owning a building. However, as we learn more about God's Word and the Christian life, believers have to wrestle with some, at least, apparent contradictions. We, you and I, are the church. But we still talk like we are going to church. Did Christ really die for a building? Christians have come to think that 
church activities occur on Sunday morning, maybe Sunday night or Wednesday night, yet we forget that a woman visiting with her neighbor is a church activity. Men repairing a car for a widow. A young lady volunteering at the Crisis Pregnancy Center. Maybe even your kids playing with the other kids on the block. All of these are or can be church activities. We grow up thinking that we go to church and assemble in a sanctuary to worship, yet the Bible says that our hearts are his sanctuary. Now, is this a real problem or just an abstract inconsistency? Well, I want to suggest today that when, we, when the identity of the church is transferred from living people to inanimate buildings, we set ourselves up for confusion at best, if not the appearance of hypocrisy. You see, the church can subtly become a place that we go to in order to fulfill our duty to God on Sundays, perhaps, and then go on with life and business as usual the rest of the week. There can be a real disconnect between our Sunday school and our Monday school and life in general. This flawed understanding within our culture makes the church seem to the world like a place where those perfect people go. Uh, But more likely, what they mean is those hypocrites who want to feel good about themselves. Of course, we would rightly respond, if they only knew us, they wouldn't think such things. Well, let me ask you, why should they think anything otherwise? Because they rarely, if ever, see the church. It's confined, for the most part, to a building. In fact, the, to the world, the Christian church can appear as a clique or a secret social group akin to something like the Masons or the Shriners, except that those groups do something for handicapped kids, whereas the church itself, they just kind of get together and they sing songs and do other weird stuff, largely avoiding the struggles of others and the realities of everyday life. So, where do we start? Let's take a stab at describing the church. Of course, we can't cover all the qualities of a church today, but I'd like to focus on one aspect. Church, the, the Bible uses different analogies in in describing the church. And the first one is that the church is a spiritual building of living stones. The Bible actually uses construction terms to describe the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. And we start here in 1 Peter 2. Uh, And there we read, putting aside all malice and uh, deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn babes, Long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to Jesus as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, 
as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Paul, in addressing the non-Jewish believers in Ephesus, uh, gets the point across this way in, in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now wait, Vincent, you just said that the church is not a building. Well, yeah, it's ironic, isn't it? Uh, But the bricks... The stones of that building are you and me. Further, those bricks are laid on a foundation of the Word of God, brought to us through the apostles and the prophets. And on that foundation, the first stone laid down, the cornerstone, the stone that determines the rest of the building, is Jesus Christ. How is the building built? The King James uses the term fitly framed together. So, I asked earlier if Christ died for a church or for a building, and in one sense he did, but that building is very different than this building. When I gave this message the first time, um, I used a visual illustration that won't work today. I I put together a couple of uh, two walls made out of Legos, little, little things like this, and one was made up of columns, each with a distinct color, each one built on top of the other, all packed together. The other one was a motley set of, of Legos, uh, you know, kind of mixed together, kind of overlapped like this. And I asked, which one is stronger? And what we did was we took the two walls and we forced them together, and the one that was mixed together, all interconnected, easily toppled the Lego wall of columns. Well, bricks make the strongest walls when linked together, overlapped, as do people or living stones when linked together in a common vision, bound together by love and sacrifice, anchored on and guided by the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, upon the firm foundation of the Word. Peter calls it a spiritual house of living stones. Now, the world sees plenty of church buildings But does it see the church? To the extent that it does not, our light is under a basket. When those living stones support and relate to one another beyond the walls of the building, then the the world has something to see that gives them a more full understanding of the term church. Now, this message today is not specifically about evangelism or outreach. That was last month. However, we, we want to start a conversation uh, and the work of integrating our purpose 
and lifestyles as a body so that the world sees us live out that purpose every day. I doubt there's a whole lot of disagreement about that goal. However, because we are questioning conventional norm, this will not be easy. So please try to follow me. I'm going to give you my perspective. I'm not really aware of any significant disagreement at Lion Lamb. However, in the process, I may step on some toes. Not unusual for me. Uh, Please be patient. Uh, We're all just trying to figure out how this might apply to our body that we call lion and lamb. Let's set, set the stage here. The majority or the dominant approach of the church in today's culture is sometimes called the programmed based model. Most of us have attended other churches which include some form of this except in really tiny churches where all activities are done together, the leadership of the church will generally see a need. It might be the youth who have nothing to do, or it it might be the young marrieds or whatever who really don't connect, or it might be the old people who are being neglected. So a program will be developed to address the need. This approach is so ingrained in our culture that it almost seems like the only way to do church. So in this model, the sense of community or relationship is sought and developed in these programs for these target groups. These groups naturally become the primary means to build relationship. The problem is that programs by their very nature tend to separate members, usually on the basis of interest or age or position in life. In these settings, Neither the family nor the members of the body as a whole are interacting. There's little, if any, integrating or building of relationships except within the small group. So the church becomes like the Lego wall that has columns built next to each other. And each column, each group, might be strong in itself, but its ties or bonds to the rest of the body may be weak or, in really large churches, totally non-existent. Now, the other side, the reaction to this approach, clearly the minority view, can go to the opposite extreme. Some would say that families should always stay together all the time, and all the activities of the church should be as a whole, uh, should be in mass, should include everyone. Well, I don't really hear anybody at Lion and Lamb suggesting that we address, we, we adopt that model either. Frankly, I want my kids hearing the truth from other godly brothers and sisters because it helps reinforce what we teach in the home. We've got to face the reality is that when our kids go out into the world, the godly views of their families will be challenged with the primary charge that those views that they developed in the home come from a narrow-minded few in the family and in the church. So it's vital that my children hear from the pulpit and from other adults closer to their age a view that is consistent with mine. This is exactly why Christy and I facilitate a focus on the family apologetics class for high schoolers. We want to fortify the faith taught within the family with real information, facts, 
and sound reasoning so that they can, on their own, with their own convictions, refute the lies that they will hear in college or in the workplace. In addition, even with our present size at Lion the Lamb, it's simply impractical for all of us to get together all the time. It's a good thing to assemble in small groups to have more accountability and to strengthen relationships. Programs in small groups are not at all bad or even unbiblical in and of themselves. Many can and do help believers grow in the Lord and draw others into fellowship. And frankly, as any organization grows, it tends to require, surprise, more organization. And church programs uh, can be a natural way to address real needs. Unfortunately, in some churches, in many churches, programs have become the life of, or perhaps just the focus of the church, instead of relationships. So we should remember, if relationships were strong enough to begin with, many of the programs would be unnecessary. I would suggest that programs that do serve a legitimate purpose should have a limited time. When they have served that purpose, it would be better to close out the program rather than to keep it on life support simply for the sake of the program. Now, as a church grows, these individual programs can become more numerous, and I would get concerned when the identity of the church becomes simply a smorgasbord of programs. Programs cannot replace relationship if the body is to retain its biblical purpose. So, what do we do? Before moving on, I want to suggest that we in Lion Lamb, all of us, take an honest and fresh look at our approach to church. There is so much to be commended about how we function now, and which I would not want to change, frankly. However, as our body grows, there will be a strong temptation, if not drive, to conform to the program-based model just because that's what most churches do. To avoid that mindset, we must be very intentional about having an interdependent, integrated approach. In the dictionary, the word integrity means not just moral wholeness, but it also means the quality or state of being complete or undivided. Completeness, a synonym would be unity. When I use the word integrated or integrity, I intend it to be applied in at least two qualitative ways. First, looking inward in the sense that we should not find our identity in segregated special interest groups. Rather, our identity should be in an interconnected body of believers. Secondly, looking outward, our lives in the church, and in the world should be integrated in the sense that we consistently carry out what we learn within the body and as individual believers beyond the literal walls of this building and beyond the figurative walls 
of Sunday morning, 9.30 to noon. In our home, we tell our children that the home is the training ground for life. It's where we're instructed, where we learn uh, from one another how to relate to one another and serve others. Home is where we rub up against each other, where we make mistakes, where we offend, where we seek forgiveness, where we forgive. Home is where we are prepared to live in a world without becoming of the world. In the same sense, the church body is where we are further discipled and learn to relate to others so that we might share the love of Christ with them and draw them to him. The church is literally a household of households. In summary, the more we learn to function as a body, the more we will be equipped to consistently be salt and light to the world. The trick is application. Therefore, we must look at everything that we do in our mission at Lion and Lamb in the light of relationship if we wish to fulfill the Great Commission. Today, we're going to first take a look at what the Word says about the functioning and character of the church as as presented in the book of Acts. There in Acts 2, these are a couple of short passages, starting in verse uh, 46. It says, Day by day the church was continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then a few chapters later, Acts 5, verse 42, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Notice, The church met both house to house, presumably the whole families, you know, small groups, and corporately in in the temple. And in that way, the church should be composed of interdependent people. Yeah, you might have more connection with a certain body of people, but you're connected with everybody else. Paul addressed uh, this issue squarely using a different analogy. If you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12, we've got a little longer passage that we're going to spend a little bit more time on. And there, starting in verse 12, 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12, we read, And even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Okay, this verse summarizes the passage. We've got unity, we've got diversity, and we have interdependence. Continuing on in verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Now here we have the second analogy introduced. In verse 13, the church body, like our physical body, is made up of diverse parts. The Holy Spirit gives diverse gifts to diverse people. 
Jews, Gentiles, bond, or free. So with our liberal brethren, we can celebrate diversity. Really. That's what we're all about. The same spirit is also the medium by which these diverse members are unified into one body. Let's continue. Verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I am not a part of the body, is it not part? Is it this, for this reason any less a part of the body? If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the, ho- if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would be the sense of smell? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, in other words, all had the same function, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. So in this passage between 14 and 20, we see the body has many parts, no one of which is, is essential by itself, but each necessary to complement the others in a well-rounded whole. For a body to exist, it's got to have different parts. Christians each have not only a different but a vital job to fulfill as part of the whole body. Can a body function without certain parts, like a foot or a hand or an eye? Well, of course. Notice, Paul doesn't use the vital organs like the brain or the heart or the the liver in this analogy. Uh, If a local body lacks one or more of the gifts, perhaps a small church, it must compensate for just like our bodies do when we have deficiencies. Recently, I was talking with a, a fellow who, he's a blind man, and he's been working the snack bar at the State House for over 30 years. And he has no problem getting around, even in the catacombs of the new basement floor uh, uh, underground. Uh, and I suspect that his sense of hearing and orientation are much more effective than mine. The body performs best and most effectively when all the parts are working together. Therefore, no one member should consider himself or herself less important. How can we say that? Verse 18, if you look at it, tells us that it is God that placed each of us as members in the body just as he desires. Now, this doesn't mean for each of us that we're stuck in a certain pigeonhole. Some may feel called to minister in one way in particular. Others may, from time to time, like a break. You know, not everybody wants to be on eternal nursery duty. So, if you feel called to serve in a new way, this may be God's call on you to grow, mature, Enlarge your borders. Do something different. Some suggestions. You know, you may be at that point in life where you need some help. If so, please let somebody know. Let somebody in leadership know. But if you can serve at this point, look for needs that aren't being met, where someone else needs a break that you can meet. Recently we did this by uh, all the work that goes into organizing the potluck. Secondly, If you are presently serving in some way, be content, but not complacent. 
wait on God's leading. Again, look for needs around you in which you might serve in another way. Let's go back to the passage. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. So here we see that the body parts work together as one, with interdependence as each part fulfills an important function. A couple of points stand out in this passage. First, one with a seemingly more important gift should not imagine that he or she can function alone. Just as a hand or a mouth or a nose would be meaningless apart from the rest of the body. However, in some churches we see, you know, one person, oftentimes the pastor, he does it all because he's the only one with that calling. Um, In fact, one thought to have a lesser gift should be accorded greater attention by the others within the body. For example, there are many folks serving behind the scenes for whom we all should be showing gratitude. Special thanks should be given to those ladies who meet to pray, those who set up the Lord's table, those who teach the two-year-olds, those who maintain the website, these people should be given more attention. Why should they be honored? Precisely because they are serving in humble obscurity. They are, therefore, according to this passage, worthy of more honor. The high-profile people, this passage says, they have no need. Paul gives us two Good reasons for this emphasis. First, he says, this is how we avoid a schism or a division within the body. Avoiding petty jealousies or pride over gifts is essential to an interrelated body. Secondly, if we really are the rocks, the stones, bricks of a spiritual household, what holds it together? And the passage says, caring one for another. In John 15, it says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. The love of Christ is the glue that holds the body of Christ together. This love mortar, if you will, is more than just emotion. It's an active component which moves us to action on behalf of one another. Basic training in the military is probably the first time for some young men that another person, shall we say, really gets his attention. If you've ever seen a drill instructor with a smoky bear hat in action, 
you know what I mean. Well, in the Marine Corps, one of the strongest concepts drummed into you in boot camp is that of keeping your unit integrity. In other words, keeping your wholeness as a unit, always functioning as a team, taking care of one another. Marines are taught that nothing less than excellence as an integrated team is expected of them. The silent drill team that you saw earlier demonstrates how a group can work as one with unit integrity and a fair amount of discipline, which would have a spiritual application as well. Marines know that they must always do their part. Why? Well, in combat, if one guy falls asleep or is playing games on his devices, it could be death to the whole team. And if I allow myself to become distracted by anything from God's plan for my family or for the church, do I really believe that Satan's objective is any more friendly than a military enemy's? As Paul says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. Unit integrity is the kind of relationship that I think the body of Christ should have. Always looking after, always caring for, always confronting with the truth, always demonstrating love and empathy for one another because we share the love of Christ. Because of this integrity or interdependence, when one member suffers, all suffer with it. And then when one member is honored, all of us should rejoice with that member. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. We are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You know, we've all been benefited by basic government assistance. Every one of us. If you drive on the roads, if you appreciate having the police and the fire department around, you've been benefited by the government. Somebody's, we ought to be grateful because somebody's had to pay for that. But to whom do we demonstrate our thankfulness? It's kind of tough. On the other hand, within the body of Christ, when somebody helps you, not out of coercion or taxation, but out of love, how do you feel towards that person? Are you not drawn closer and bound together with that person? And when you're the helper, the giver, Do you not feel a special bond with that person or family who are so grateful for your support and love? Each of us has needs, and sometimes we go through a season in our lives when we have significant needs and really can't help anybody else because of our own needs. Other times, though, we are in a position to meet needs. I've got a little theory I've mentioned to several of you, 
and I believe I'm kind of put together like everybody else, with a basic need to be needed. One of the ways that those who can meet needs become solid rocks or members of the body that are bound tightly together in the body is to feel that he or she is needed. That is what I believe adds purpose to life, to be needed by others. Now, in closing up here, I hope you have not perceived in me a criticism of those who have been serving others in programs or groups. Rather, the point I'm trying to make is that all of us should keep first things first. Our relationships within our families and the church are much more than the sum total of our various activities and our programs. We should each focus on serving as part of the whole body of Christ and continue to develop stronger relationships with other members of the body. This is the best way for the world to know that we are Christians by our love. A final analogy that I heard somewhere concerns the components of the cross. There's a horizontal beam resting on a vertical beam. And in a sense, we've been talking about the horizontal today, you know, our relationship with and love for one another. And that's not an unimportant topic in Scripture. In a few moments, we'll shift our focus to the vertical, our relationship with our Creator. This longer beam bears the full weight of the sins of the whole world and the everlasting love and forgiveness of God. Please bow as I read a short passage that I believe stands at the juncture of the horizontal and the vertical beams of the cross of Christ. Out of 1 Corinthians 10. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Lord God, we have so much to learn. And Lord, we as individuals, as families, and as a church body wish to carry out your purpose for us here. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us from being critical from being judgmental, from being prejudiced. But help us, Lord, to find your perfect will for us. Help us, Lord, not to do things just because other people or churches do them that way, but rather seek from your word and through your spirit your plan for this body, for our families, and for each one of us day in and day out that the world may know of your love through each and every one of us. We give praise and honor to you now. In Jesus' precious name, amen.